All right, we're going to jump in, man. We're in the book of Romans, and uh, if, uh, if you're new, some of you may, I'm sorry, man, my voice sounds like I'm a seventh grader, doesn't it? Uh, you'll just have to put up with it until I can't anymore. I'm going to preach until my voice is gone. We ought to write a song about that, right? We ought to write a song about that. I'm not going to sing. That's tonight. Okay? Now listen, all of you need to come back tonight. All of you. I, it would be great. Listen, we at least need this bottom. Tonight, we're, we're, we're Travis is, uh, and the band here, are we're laying down albums. Av- we. <laughs> I'm not singing. I'm not doing anything. Okay? I'm just going to be here. I'll sing with you guys. But uh, recording the live album tonight, uh, 6 o'clock, I think it is. So love to have you guys. Please come and be a part of that. Travis wants you. It's going to be a live album out everywhere, and so you can be a part of that. So come at 6 tonight. Invite everybody you know. Man, let's pack this place out so that this man will be loud, all right? So, so you come tonight and do that. Well, we're glad you're here. Some of you, it might be your second time here because Easter was your first time, right? Last week, maybe this is your first time. But, and if you're first time and you're looking for a church home, then we hope you found it. But we don't want you to just jump in. In all honesty, I, I want you to know who we are before you sign on a dotted line of membership. So I, I want to spend a moment telling you who we are and what we're about because you need to know that, right? I mean, listen, there are a lot of churches, and we hope God leads you here, but uh, we want to make sure you understand who we are and what we're about, all right? And so, uh, man, we have great music. We have incre- you, today, you've experienced it. We have incredible music. But our goal is not to entertain you when you come on Sunday morning. I just want you to know that. Don't come and say, oh, man, it's a, our goal is not to entertain you. Our musicians write most of our music. And, man, uh, they write most of our music and our songs. And, 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 and it's awesome. But our objective is, in writing those songs is not so to display their talent so that you'll make much of them. They write songs to display the glory of God so that you'll make much of Him. Okay? That's why we're here. When I preach messages on Sunday, I don't preach messages uh, to help you feel good about yourself, in all honesty. I mean, man, I, I, I want you to feel good. I don't, don't, but I'm not here to preach messages that help you feel good about yourself, who you are. I want to preach messages that help you know who God is, okay? Because I really believe there's a spiritual famine in America, and there are many reasons for that. The spiritual famine, and it's causing many Christians to starve to death spiritually and starve to death theologically. And I believe that there are many reasons for that. A lot of the responsibility falls squarely on the shoulders of Christians, okay? But a lot of the responsibility squares falls squarely on the shoulders of pastors who are more concerned about making people feel good than they are about helping them know God. And so therefore they preach sugar-coated, just, uh, you know, shallow, me-centered sermons, how-to sermons. And, and to be quite honest with you, it's almost like I got spiritual Tourette's, you know, when I, when I listen to those. I start, man, I just start blurting out words I shouldn't, to be quite honest. Because, man, it produces a fake faith. And fake faith is fatal. And that is our bottom line for today. Fake faith is fatal. And when you leave, I want you to understand what I mean by fake faith. All right? And and that's what Paul talks about. I mean, we are, you know, uh, uh, going through the book of Romans. And that's why we consistently preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, exegetically. Because, man, you know, I I want you to not just, you know, look at passages that pat you on the back. I want you to look at passages that pat you on the backside too, right? Because we need the stuff that is easy to swallow, but if we want to be well-rounded and mature in our faith, we need the stuff that's a little harder to swallow, right? I don't want to just preach spiritual dessert that tastes good for a moment, but it doesn't sustain you. We want to give you some meat, that builds spiritual muscle that helps you fight the good fight. 
And so therefore, we are going through the book of Romans, and that's what we've been going through here. And uh, it's an incredible letter. It's Paul's letter that he wrote to the church at Rome. And maybe you've been feeling like, if you've been here for a while, we've been in this book for the last few months, and we're going to finish chapter 2 today, finally. But maybe you've been here and you've been thinking, you know what? Man, we've been talking about sin. We've been talking about judgment. We've been talking about God's wrath. I mean, each week, and it seems like we're stuck there. We're in a, we're in a judgment rut, you know, and we have. And the reason we have is because that's what Paul's been talking about. From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through, through chapter 3, verse 20, he talks about judgment and wrath and, and sin, and he does that for a couple of reasons. One, that's not, he would, if he was, wanting to just sell a bunch of books, if he wanted to gain a bunch of Instagram followers, those are not topics that he would preach on, right? I mean, he would preach more on, you know, about how God wants to bless you and make you happy and some junk about how Jesus, you know, suffered and died so that you could be healthy and wealthy or something because that sells books and gets Instagram followers, right? That's what he would preach, but he didn't. Uh, Rather, he focused on sin and wrath and judgment in the first part of Romans because he wasn't interested in his fame. He was interested in God's name. He, He wasn't just, you know, his desire wasn't to win the approval of people. It was for the salvation of people. And so he gave them the gospel and 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 he spent a lot of time on on sin and wrath and judgment here because he didn't want to produce a fake faith. He wanted to have a real faith because fake faith is fatal. So he talked about these things for a couple of reasons. One, he wants to go to to uh, Spain and preach the gospel. The Spaniards didn't know the gospel. It was what we call an unreached territory. The gospel had not yet been preached there. Paul's in the city of Corinth and he's writing this letter. And Rome is between Corinth and Spain. And he wants to come through as a large city. And he wants the Romans to send him to Spain. You know, we're a sending church, right? I mean, we send people. We, we send missionaries. We're sending Benny and Karen to India. We send people to Bangkok. We send people to Brussels. Man, we're we not just sending people across the pond. We send you across the neighborhood. And we want to send you across the school complex, across your office complex, your cubicle to the next cubicle, whatever, the, the office. We want to send you. Well, Paul wanted the Roman church to send him to Spain because the Spaniards had not yet preached the gospel. And he needed money to go to Spain. And so this basically, Romans is a missionary support letter. And what he did was, like you support some of our missionaries, and if you don't and you'd love to, let us know because we have missionaries that need support. And what Paul did in Romans, he didn't just play on their emotions with some slick PowerPoint presentation or you know, some slick sales pitch to get them to give. What he did was he wanted them to understand God's glory and the gospel in in a much bigger picture because if we understand that, then we will give everything to it. And so that's one of the reasons he spends so much time on sin and judgment and wrath because he's helping people understand the totality of the gospel. Now, another reason he does is because he's wanting the religious Jews to understand that God doesn't grade on a curve. You see, he came out in 118 by talking about those immoral pagans. You know, those immoral pagans who, who you know, they're just absolutely, I mean, radically be- de- depraved in how they live, right? And as he's preaching about those immoral pagans, the religious Jews, man, they were like, yeah, you tell them, Paul. Those immoral pagans, the world would be better off without them. I'll just get rid of them, right? And you tell them. So in chapter 2, he turns his guns on the religious Jews. And he says, listen, you're cheering me on, but you need the gospel as much as they do. You're very religious, 
but your heart is far from God. You have a fake faith, and fake faith is fatal. Now, they would have taken big issue with that. I mean, they would have been madder than a Kentucky fan last weekend, right? I mean, they would have been hot. It's, it, time's passed. I mean, you know, we can, we can get on them a little bit now again. We've let it cool down a little bit, the Kentucky fans it is. And so, listen, they would have been hot. They would have said, no, no, what are you talking about? We don't need your gospel. Look at us and look at them. Look at them. I mean, look at how wild they are and how crazy they live. And look at us. You see, they did what we do. And you know what we, we, we do naturally? We gravitate to judging ourselves and evaluating ourselves off of the curve of the culture, right? Off of the actions and the behaviors of other people. And, and listen, that's dangerous because the world is full of morons who make you look good, okay? I mean, all you have to do is turn on MTV or go to a NASCAR race and you're like, yep, I'm pretty good, right? And so, listen, uh, he wanted them to know that God doesn't grade on a curve. And so, uh, you know, uh, he, he, Jesus told the story, by the way, of two men to help us get this. Jesus told the story of, of two men who went into the temple to pray. <clears throat> One was a religious Pharisee. One was a sinner, a low-down, dirty sinner. One was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. You know, Pharisee was a Jew of the Jews. I mean, the religious dude. So these two go into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee, he prays, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy. Thank you that I'm not like all the other irreligious pagans. Thank you that I'm not a, an adulterer. Thank you that I don't steal. Thank you I'm not a tax collector. God, I pray. I fast twice a week. I tithe. Thank you that I'm not like them. You see, he forgot that God grades according to his standard of holy perfection, not according to the curve of culture, right? He thought he was good because he looked at everybody else and said, man, look at my behavior. Look at them. Well, the sinner, he bowed his head. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He was so ashamed. He felt so unworthy. And he said, Father, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then, as he told this story, People would have really related to it, identified with it. The religious people would have identified with it. Gentiles would have identified with it. Everybody would have identified with the story. And Jesus said, let me tell you which one went away justified. Not the religious dude. He didn't go away justified. It was the sinner who went away justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And all those who humble themselves will be justified. You see, religion... Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, is a weapon, a tool used by the enemy to produce counterfeit spirituality. As long as you're religious, then you can have this counterfeit spirituality. I go to church. I'm, I read the Bible. I pray. I tithe. I give. I do these things, and you've got this counterfeit spirituality. And the enemy uses religion to build this counterfeit spirituality. And maybe you've heard the term in the exercise world that says, you know, uh, no pain, no gain. I mean, man, if you're not going at it hard enough to, to have some pain, you're not going to have any gain, right? Well, in the religious world, you need to understand that it's all pain and no gain. It's all pain. It's all pain because you feel the weight of legalism, the weight of this works-based uh, theology and, and religion that says, I've got to do this, this, and this to be right with God. And it's all pain because you've got to do all this stuff, and there is no gain because it gets you nowhere, right? And so... Paul focuses on sin and wrath and judgment because he knows that the religious Jews have a fake faith and fake faith is fatal. 
He knows that until we, he knows that we can never understand the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone unless we are come into a deep sense of our sinfulness and hopelessness apart from God's grace. And so in, in chapter 2 of Romans, from 17 through the end of the uh, chapter, he really begins to hit the religious Jews between the eyes with a two before about a fake faith. And so we're going we're gonna to understand what fake faith is all about as we break down this passage. So let's, let's begin in 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew, now you can, uh, you can hear his sarcasm. We're, you, you, we've been going through Romans, so you, you can pick up on the context of this. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. So Paul, he starts out here by saying, so if you call yourself a Jew, now listen, nothing wrong with being a Jew. Matter of fact, it was an honor to be a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. All the disciples were Jews. The Jews were God's chosen people. God chose Jews out of all the people of the, of the earth to, to represent him to the world, to be a light to the nations. So it was a privilege and an honor to be a Jew. The problem was they began to equate their Judaism with being right with God. They begin to say, I'm a Jew, I'm right with God. And so that's why Paul said, so if you call yourself a Jew, you have a fake faith if you're relying on your name. And so to feel the full force of this passage, what we need to do is substitute the word Christian for the word Jew, right? We substitute. So if you call yourself a Christian, so we begin to substitute that word. And because Paul is writing to the religious Jews of his day and the religious Christians today and, and who rely on their name in being right with God. So what do you mean by name? Well, uh, I'm Baptist. Well, I mean, are, are you right with God? I mean, are, are, when you die, God says, am I going to let you into heaven? I mean, uh, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? Well, I'm Baptist. I, I'm Pentecostal. I'm Catholic. I'm Methodist. I'm Church of Christ. Or, you know, uh, maybe you, you, you claim a church. I, I go to Life Point. Man, I was a member at Life Point. I remember at First Baptist. I, 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 I'm at St. Patrick's. I'm you, whatever name you can come up with of a church. Man, maybe it's a pastor. Pat Hood was my pastor. Listen, I, I, don't say that. That, that and $1.50 won't even get you a cup of coffee at, at Starbucks, okay? It's certainly not going to get you into heaven. So listen, my, Pat Hood's my pastor, Matt Chandler's my pastor, I listen to John Pipe. Maybe, you know, maybe it's what, I, I'm a Sunday school teacher, I, I'm, a, I'm a deacon, I, I'm a, I, listen, I'm a small group leader, I, I'm a leader in the church. Listen, <laughs> religious people are worried about names. True Christians are worried about Jesus, okay? That's the only name true Christians are going to claim. And so Paul is saying here, listen, you have a fake faith if you're counting on Judaism, if you're counting on being Baptist, if you're counting on being Methodist, if you're counting on the church you go to, if you're counting on something that you do, if that's what you're relying on to make you right with God, that's fake faith. It's only Jesus and Jesus only. And then he said, not only do you rely on a name, he said, you rely on the law. Now, the law is a meaning for Scripture right? That, that was the scripture. The Greeks in that day, they had Aristotle. They had Plato. 
Man, those are big hitters right there. I mean, Aristotle and Plato, those are sharp, smart philosophers, big hitters. That's who the Greeks had. But man, the Jews had the Word of God. The Jews had God's revelation. He had revealed himself to the prophets, to Moses. Moses wrote down the book of Genesis. He wrote down Exodus. He wrote Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books, Moses. Uh, you know, David wrote Psalms. And, I mean, Solomon wrote, you know, Ecclesiastes. I mean, you, he, he revealed himself to the prophets. And as he revealed himself to the prophets, they wrote it down. But listen, God even wrote some of the law with his own finger on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and gave it to Moses. Man, you can't get any better than that, right? And so that's good. And he's saying the problem is not having the Scripture. The problem is that you equate having the Scripture and knowing the Scripture with being right with God. You see, they thought that they knew the Scripture, and they did. They, they, they memorized it. They knew it. And they equated knowing the Scripture with being right from God. And Paul said, you know the Scripture, but you don't know the God of the Scripture. You know the Bible, but you don't know the God of the Bible. When it comes to Bible knowledge, they were varsity. When it came to Bible application, they didn't even make the JV team. Okay, and so Paul said, you're equating your Bible knowledge, you're equating the fact that you have the Scripture and that the Bible knowledge with knowing God, you don't even know the God of the Bible. Listen, folks, we're much more privileged than the Jews. The Jews were privileged. They had the Bible. The Gentiles didn't have the Word of God. They had the Word of God. They were privileged. We're more privileged than they ever thought about being because they had Old Testament prophets and they had wisdom uh, and prophets and, and, and law. Listen, we've got the full written revelation of God. All 66 books. There are no more books of the Bible being written. Anybody tells you they have another testament of Jesus Christ, that's called a cult, okay? That's called a cult. There are no more scriptures outside of the Bible. We have all 66 books of the Bible. We're more privileged. Not only do we have all 66 books of the Bible, man, we have more translations than, than you can possibly name. We have the KJV, the new KJV, the NIV, the NASB, the, the ESV, the HCSB, the ABC, the 123, whatever. We, we have so many translations. Man, we have Bibles for everybody, right? I mean, we have, we have Bibles for people in the military. We have Bibles for couples. If you're married, there's married, couple, uh, there's married study Bibles. There's Bibles for single people. Bibles for children. My house, I've got my kids have a children's Bible. Man, there are even Bibles with pictures so Ohio State fans can understand it, right? I mean, listen, there are Bibles. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have it on our cell phone. We have it on our laptop. We have it on our iPad. Listen, we have access to the Bible like never before. But just because you have the Bible and just because you know some Bible doesn't mean you know the God of the Bible. And so Paul is saying if you're relying on the fact that you're a Baptist, the fact that you're a Methodist, the fact that you're Pentecostal, the fact that you know some memory verses, that's a fake faith. That's a fake faith. And, and then he, 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 say, he, he says, not only do you rely on your name and the law, you rely on your works. He says, man, you, you're, a, you're a guide. To, you, you think you're a guide to the blind. You think that you are a light in the darkness. You are, you know, instruct the foolish, the fools. You teach the children. All those are good things, aren't they? I mean, those are great things. We should be a light to the blind, a, a guide to the blind. We should be a light in the darkness. The Bible tells us that we should be light and salt in our world. 
We should instruct and we should teach. We should do all those things. Those are great things. Problem was, they were not teaching and guiding and instructing out of a humble responsibility. They were teaching, guiding, and instructing out of an arrogant superiority. Paul is saying, you're trusting those things and you're arrogant and you think you've spiritually arrived and everyone else is spiritual idiots. He says, man, you think you're so much better than everybody? And your pride is keeping you from realizing your need for grace. And your pride is keeping you from living sent. And so he said, it's fake faith. You counting on teaching a Sunday school class? You, you, really? You, you counting on, you know, a serving? You counting on being on the church board? You counting on the fact that you are a pastor to get you into heaven? You, you counting on that? That's fake it's not because of the church you're a part of or the denomination or the fact that you know Bible verses or anything you do. He said all those things, that, that, those are good things, by the way. You should be a member of a church. You should be a member of a church. The Bible is clear on you should be a member of the church. You should uh, uh, know the Scripture. <clears throat> you should do things. You should, you know, lead and, and, and be a light. Now, you should, but those are good things. But if that's what you're counting on to make you righteous, it's fake. And fake faith is fatal. Now let's go on and look at verses 21 through 23. He said, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Again, you can see his sarcasm. While you, are pre while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? <clears throat> you who abhor idols, abhor idols. Do you rob temples? <clears throat> you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He names three ways. Three ways. Three, not three. He names three ways that they don't do not practice what they preach. He names three ways that their walk doesn't match their talk. He says, first off, you you steal. Second off, you commit adultery. And third off, you abhor idols, yet you rob temples. Now, the first two are easy to get. What, what's he mean by abhorring idols and robbing temples? Well, well, they obviously hated false gods and hated idol worship. And we, we saw a picture of that last week, if you were here. You can go online and watch it if you weren't here last week, of idol worship of false gods in Buddhist temples in Thailand when we showed the Padas story. And you saw all these idols and people then, people today all over the world worship false gods. They bow down to idols. And man, obviously the Jews hated idols, right? They hated idols. Uh, they, they abhorred idols. But they had no problem, some of them, with breaking into pagan temples, stealing the idols because they were gold and selling them for profit, right? Now, that, that, that wasn't the majority. That would just happen uh, sometime. And and when they would do that, that would be accustomed to you hating pornography, of which I hope you do. We preached on that a few weeks ago. Hating pornography, but producing it and selling it to make money. So, so what he's saying here is, and I want you to understand, Paul's not saying that all Jews steal or all Jews commit adultery. He's not saying all Jews steal idols and sell them to make profit. They had a very high external moral code. Most of them lived up to that code. So he's not saying that all Jews do these things. He's being figurative to let them know that no Jew keeps the law fully. Okay? Because they equate it. If you're Jewish, you're saved. You're Jewish, you're right with God. You do these things, you're right with God. You know the scriptures, God gave the scriptures to Jews, you're right with God. He's saying, no, 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 that doesn't do it. 
Because no Jew keeps the law fully. So what he's doing is he's helping them to understand that true faith is internal. It's not external. It's, it's a matter of the heart. Jesus hit on this when he said, you think you're good because you didn't have sex with somebody else's wife today. Boy, they had a high standard, didn't it? You think you're good because you didn't have sex with somebody else's wife. But Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. If you had lust in your heart, you already committed adultery. Now that's, I, I, that's bad news for all of us right there, right? Because everyone has had lust in their heart. And so Jesus said, you know, it's not just the external act. If you had lust in your heart. And so before you begin to think, Jesus saying, man, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's not just a matter of external actions. It is a matter of the heart. It's internal. It's not just external. And Paul is using the same principle to say that true religion, true faith, true faith is a matter of the heart, not just the actions. It's a matter of the heart. It's not just the fact that you're a Jew. It's not just the fact that you do some good works. It's not just the fact that you can memorize Scripture. All those can be faked. All those can be faked. It's not just a matter of action. It's a matter of the heart. And he's talking about idols. You know, he's talking about here idols. He's not saying that, you know, listen, when you physically bow down to an idol, that's idol worship, right? And so we look at those people who worship idols and we say, oh, poor souls. Man, they need Jesus. They're worshiping idols. Man, they're just, are they just, can't they just not grasp it? I mean, but here's the fact. Paul is saying and Jesus is saying that, yes, it's idol worship to physically, externally bow down to an idol. But listen. What you don't understand is it's not just the physical act of bowing down to an idol. It is in your heart when you make anything ultimate besides Jesus. It's when you look at sex and say, sex is the thing I'm going after. When you look at money and say, money is the air I breathe. When you look at your career and you say, I'm giving everything to my career right now. When you look at your kids and your kids are ultimate. It's whatever provides security in your life. Whatever you look to for comfort. Whatever you look to for meaning and purpose. That is your idol and it's no different than bowing down to a false god. And he says, that is idol worship. Because it's, in, it's not just external. It is on the internal. It is a matter of the heart. And so he says, you know what? You guys... You're good at a dead orthodoxy. That's what you have. Now, dead orthodoxy basically means this. Man, you know the Word. You can know some of the Bible. Matter of fact, a lot of people today have dead orthodoxy. A lot of people are really good at theology, to be honest. I mean, they study the Word and they know the Word and their objective in doing that is not so that they can be transformed by it, but so that they can know it, so that they can let you how much they know. You met people like that? I mean, man, they just want to argue the word with you. They want to argue theology. And their objective in knowing theology is not to understand how glorious and beautiful and amazing God is, but to know it so that, man, I can know it and you don't. And I want to tell you how much I know and you don't. You see, that's fake religion. That's fake faith. He said, you've got a dead orthodoxy. You know this, but it's all about you. You know, he said, it's not changed anything in your heart. So therefore, you're good at pointing out everybody else's sin. But you have little awareness of your own. So you look at people and say, oh, look, I'm not like him. He steals. Why, you cheat on your income taxes. Oh, I'm not like, look at that homosexuality. I mean, can you believe that homosexual? Why, you go home and sleep with your girlfriend. Why, oh, you, you're good at pointing out other people's sins. But, man, you have little awareness of your own. That's what he's saying. He said that is a fake faith. And Frederick Nietzsche <clears throat> said this, and, 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 and before, I, before I tell you, the, 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 the dagger to the heart, the dagger to the heart, Frederick Nietzsche said this. He said that, that the Christianity 
the biggest argument against Christianity is Christians. Now, here's why I said that. Because Paul, here the dagger in the heart of what he was saying is, he said, you do all these things, and here's the dagger, is that God's name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles. You see, God called Israel, why? He called Israel not because they were good, not because, you know, he, he went down and did an evaluation of all the peoples of the earth and said, okay, man, you're better than this group. I'll take you. I want you on my, that's not why he chose Israel. That's not why he chose you. He didn't choose, choose Israel because they were better. They were the smallest of all people. They were the weakest. He chose them by his grace. And he chose them and said, I want to use you to represent me so that the world will look at you and they will know me because of you. That's why I'm choosing you, right? I want you to be a light to the nations. Well, they got arrogant. They began to think, well, you chose me for me. I'm good. You chose me because I'm, I've got some ability. And, and so they forgot why God chose them. And so they were living, man. They were religious, and they had a faith that was fake. And as a result, the nations were looking at them, and they were going, we don't want your God. We don't want your God. They were, they were supposed to live in a way that made God famous, and they were living in a way that made him infamous. We don't want your God, and that is absolutely a tragedy. And so Frederick Nietzsche said, the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. Because the important thing is not what people say about us, and that's what religious people are interested in. What are they going to say about me? The important thing is not what, what people say about us. The important thing is what people say about God because of us. That's why God chose Israel. But their faith had become fake. And as a result, they were making God infamous, not famous. Don't misunderstand, folks. We're very clear here. God's not looking at you to be perfect. He's not looking for you to be perfect. That's not going to happen. It's not about you being perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. It's about direction. The world is not turned off by you when you screw up. Just understand that, okay? When you mess up, no matter how bad it is, the world doesn't go, oh, man, you're a Christian. No, 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 that, that's not what, that's attractive to the world if, if you're real in it. You know what turns the world off when you're fake? That's what turns the world off. That's what makes people, uh, you know, not want your God. It's when you're fake. When you mess up and you own it and you, and you say, man, I, I, I screwed up. I messed up. When you own it, that, that's attractive. People say, wow, I, I haven't seen it. That's attractive. So the world doesn't want you to be, the world's not looking for perfection. They're looking for somebody that's real, and that's attractive. And that's what, that wasn't what Israel were doing. They were upholding an, uh, themselves to, 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 uh, in superiority over everybody else. Let's go on and finish it out, verses 25 through 29. He says, for circumcision is indeed, or indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Well, that doesn't hardly make sense, really, from a physical standpoint anyway, does it? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, it will make sense, all right? I promise. All the Scripture makes sense when you know it. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision, but break the law. <clears throat> For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. <clears throat> but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. 
So Paul then sort of shifts gears. He's talked about the fact that you, you think you are a, a right with God because you're a Jew. You think you're right with God because you have the law and know the law. You think you're right with God because of your works. Now he says you think you're right with God because you're circumcised. Now we start talking about circumcision. Every man in the place starts to cringe a little bit, don't they? I mean, that's not a fun, I mean, why in the world, you, you think about the, circumcision is obviously a big deal in scripture because it talks about it. You think, what's the big deal about circumcision, right? I mean, what is it? Well, we, we can't hardly think of circumcision as being a necessity because it's not for us. Circumcision is optional. You know, some parents, when they have baby boys, some parents have their children circumcised. Some parents don't. It's, it's choice. It's optional. It's not a necessity. But in the Old Testament, for the Jews, it is a necessity. It was a necessity because it revealed that you were a part of the covenant community. Now, circumcision goes back to Abraham. When God entered into covenant with Abraham, he gave circumcision as a visible sign that Abraham, you circumcised because that proves that you are a part of the covenant community. And circumcision is a symbol of the curse that will fall upon you if you break covenant. If you break covenant, this is the curse. Now, in the Old Testament, you see, we, they didn't have contracts. You've got to understand context. We have contracts today, right? I mean, I buy a house, I sign a contract. I buy a car, I sign a contract. When I adopted my kids, I had to sign papers that said I will never abandon them. I signed, you know, a contract. And, and contracts are great. Contracts, you know, help protect us in different situations. And we need contracts. And, and whatnot. But the problem is when it comes down to the things of spiritual nature and, and even marriage, we begin to equate marriage and all that stuff as contract. And the problem is contracts have escape clauses. Generally, we can get out of contracts, right? I mean, they're written in a way that sometimes you can get out. And so we enter into marriage and marriage biblically is not a contract. Legally in our country, it can be a contract, but marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant. Because the Bible doesn't talk contractually, it talks covenantally, okay? And so, so in a covenant, you didn't sign a piece of paper when you entered into a covenant in the Old Testament. What you did was you entered into covenant, and it was binding, no escape clause. And when two people entered into a covenant, they didn't sign. What they did was they acted out the curse that would be upon them if they broke their end of the covenant, if they broke promise. In other words, when... Two people entered into a covenant. He might, one of the guys might reach down and pick up dirt, throw on his head, and say, if I break my end of the deal, may, may my life be like the dust of the ground. Or they might cut an animal in two, separate it, and walk between the animal to say, if I break my end of the bargain, may I be like this animal cut in half. It's exactly what God did to, uh, with Abraham in Genesis when he made a covenant with Abraham right? He said, Abraham fell into a sleep. He, God saw God walk between, said, this is going to be me if I break. So God makes a covenant, will never break his promise. Abraham entered into a covenant. So when Abraham entered into a covenant with God, God said, I want you, Abraham, to be circumcised and all the Jews, your people, that'll be as numerous as the sands of the seashore, I'll, they're going to be circumcised. And the reason they're going to be circumcised is to prove that you're serious and your circumcision is an outward symbol of the covenant promise and the, the, the curse that will fall upon you if you break the covenant promise. In other words, Abraham, if you break your end of the bargain, <clears throat> you'll be cut off 
from me. Because you see, circumcision is a tender, intimate cutting off. It is a tender and intimate cutting off. And God is saying, Abraham, when you and the Jewish people are circumcised, you are saying, I'm serious. And if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, I'm going to be cut off from God and from the covenant community. Now, folks, I'm just going to tell you that's bad news. Because Paul has spent all of Romans 2 helping the Jews understand nobody keeps the covenant fully. That's bad news. Everybody breaks the covenant. Everybody has broken the covenant standards. No one keeps it fully. That's bad news. But the good news is, Paul, when he's talking to the Colossians, in Colossians, he's talking to a group of Gentile Christians. They were Gentiles. They had given their life to Jesus. They had surrendered to Jesus. They had not yet been fully, they had not yet been physically circumcised. And so in that age of the church, there was all this deal. Do they need to be circumcised? Do they not need to be circumcised? And, and, and Paul writes to the Colossians, and they had not yet been physically circumcised. And he said, you have been circumcised in Jesus. Now what he's meaning by that is this. This is the good news. The bad news is he gave circumcision as a sign that if we break covenant, we will be cut off from God and cut off from the covenant community. Bad news because we've, none of us have lived up to that, folks. But then the good news is we've been circumcised in Jesus. And what he means is Jesus was truly circumcised when he was on the cross. In other words, when Jesus was suffering the wrath of God and when he was on the cross, he was truly circumcised, cut off from God and cut off, as the Old Testament says, from the land of the living, cut off from life. He suffered the price of breaking the covenant on our behalf and paid the price so that we don't have to. He paid your debt and suffered by being circumcised himself. And so circumcision was a symbol like the lamb on Passover. The lamb that they slaughtered and put the blood on the doorpost and, and, you know, and any family who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would be passed over but the firstborn was taken of all the Egyptians. But the blood of the lamb Well, that was a foreshadowing, a symbol of Jesus who would have his blood shed. And those of us who are covered in the blood, we're safe, we're redeemed, right? Just as the lamb was a foreshadowing, just as the sacrificial system was a foreshadowing, circumcision is a foreshadowing of Jesus who would be cut off. That's why it's no longer a necessity because we who are in Christ have been circumcised in Jesus. It is now optional. Now, in the first, I preached at 6.15 this morning. I preached at, at the Stewart's Creek campus. We videoed it, put it on, and as I was preaching, and I meant to say, you know, I was talking about circumcision. I said, circumcision is a necessity if you're a Christian. Now, that was a slip of the tongue. And I, I, I really quick, I had to correct myself because I knew at that point, we're going to have an all-woman campus here because no man's going to come to Christ, Right? We're going to circumcise you boys right now. Line them up. we got the flint knives outside. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I promise you that. we got the blood bank coming in. we got the cir- circumcision bank over here coming in. Thank the Lord we don't have to do that any longer. Jesus. Hey, listen. That's a sacrifice in and of itself for you, isn't it, guys? Jesus. He was our circumcision. He was cut off completely to pay our sin debt. So we no longer have to be circumcised. It was a symbol. It was a symbol of an, of, of an outward. And even in that day, circumcision didn't save them. So here was the problem. Circumcision was good. Circumcision was good because it was a symbol of an inward covenant reality. But what they began to do is take a symbol and make it reality. They began to say, hey, I'm good with God because I'm circumcised. 
That's fake faith. I'm good with God because I'm a Jew. I'm good with God because I know some, some of the law. I'm good with God because of the works. I'm good with God because I'm circumcised. And Paul said that's fake. Fake. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. And he said, if you have no change and no, if you have no transformation, then your circumcision is of no value at all to you. It means nothing. Now let me, again, substitute some words. For us today, Paul said, you think you're a Christian? He said, because you've been circumcised? So today, let's substitute the word Jew. Let's substitute the word Christian for the word Jew. And for the word circumcised, you just plug in church membership, plug in baptism, plug in communion. You think you're a Christian because you've been baptized? Really? We baptized 60-some people last week. It was a glorious day. Awesome. But let me tell you, if any of those 60-some people account on that water saving them, they're in trouble because that's a fake faith. That's why we make very clear to anyone being baptized, this is not essential for salvation. Your salvation is only in Jesus. But like circumcision of the old covenant, baptism is a symbol that you are now a part of the covenant community. And if you say you're a believer and you have not been baptized, you're walking in disobedience and need to follow through with baptism because Jesus commanded it as a symbol of your new life, an outward symbol of an inner reality that I am a part of the covenant community. But if you're counting on your baptism to save you, that's a fake faith. Communion Someday when you're before God, if you say, well, God, I took communion. I took communion on Good Friday down there at Life Point Church Christmas Eve every year. Woo! God's going to say, well, what's that? I mean, great. That's an outward symbol of the body and blood of Christ. But what did you do with the body and blood of Christ? Did it really transform you? I was a member at Life Point Church. <laughs> great. Good. The church is the body of Christ. What did you do with the real body of Christ that was literally torn apart for you? You see, faith, fake faith is fatal. It's fatal to you and your soul. It's fatal to the nations who see you when you have a fake faith and your God becomes infamous, not famous. It's fatal. But a real faith is fantastic. It's life-giving. It is literally transforming. And so today, I, my challenge to you, I started out by saying, listen, if you are new and Man, you say, I, I want to be a part of this place. I, I want to sign on a dotted line. Before you do, you know who we are. And who we aren't is a bunch of religious folks that play religious games that's going to make you think you're okay because you got baptized, took communion, joined a church, and prayed a prayer and cried an ugly cry. <laughs> and that didn't do anything for you unless your, unless your heart was transformed by Jesus. I'll tell you who we are. We're going to challenge you to make God famous by how you live. We're never going to challenge you to be perfect because you will never be perfect. But we're going to challenge you to show fruit of repentance by progression in your spiritual walk. We're going to challenge you to live sent, to be a literal light to the blind, a light in the darkness, a guide to the blind, an instructor to the foolish, and a teacher of children. We're going to encourage you and challenge you to live the faith and let your walk match your talk, not by being perfect, but by being real. You want to be a part of something like that? We'd love to have you. But if you're looking for just something that you can come and sit and be religious and count that, Man, I can recommend a lot of places, but that's not here, okay? Because we care too much about you and the name of God to let you just sit and do that stuff. So today, man, we're getting ready to close out. Travis and the band's going to come back out, and they're going to sing another song. And when you hear the Word of God, you've got to respond. That's, that's biblically what happens. And so 
We're going to ask you to respond in many different ways. Some of you are just going to, man, you're going to sing till your voice is gone just like mine. Because Jesus has redeemed you and your faith is real. And you're going to say, Jesus, I love you. Some of you, man, this word today has patted you on the backside a little bit. Some of you say, man, I don't don't know here. I mean, I'm broken because, have I counted? Come back and talk to us. Next steps is out the door and to the right. You'll see somebody there. We'll be glad to talk to you. Some of you, man, you're you're just going to thank God that he's redeemed you and thank God for the progress. You're not perfect. Quit focusing on the fact that how far you're not yet and focus on how far God's brought you if there's progress and thank God for how far he's brought you. Sanctification is, is progressive. Growth is progressive. And so some of you need to respond by just thanking God for what he's doing in your life. So we're going we're gonna to respond now. Travis and, and the band are going to come after I pray. <clears throat> you respond how God's called you. We're going to take up our tithes and our offerings. Man, we want you to come back tonight at 6. Worship, sing, tear this place apart, man. Go out of here and make God famous, not infamous, among the nations. Father, we love you so much. Thank you. your amazing grace thank you for this church for these people god to be quite honest thank you for a group of people who don't want to just come and have their backs padded and god just be told all the good stuff god and the easy stuff lord thank you for a church that says man we want to become like jesus god i know we have people here who don't know you we have people here who've been following you for a while everything in between and i pray that god you would just Lord, help us to become more and more like you. Wherever we are, help us to keep progressing and moving. And God, I pray that we would be absolutely just sick of fake faith, of religious, fake religiosity. God, help us just to be real. When we screw up, help us to admit it. God, that draws people. God, help us to honor you and how we live our lives. God, if there's anybody here today who's relied on a fake faith, I pray that today their faith would become real. God, as you change hearts, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.